Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Hey, Jets fans. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Jet Centric Podcast. I'm joined by Brady and our good friend Murad Atesh of The Athletic. Um, today, we're going to talk a bit about the end of the season and kind of how, uh, how we're doing heading into the playoffs. Um, I guess we'll get right into it, kind of uh, a bit of a maybe a poor ending to the season with the long losing streak, followed by a couple of wins. Um, is there any hope for the Jets going into the playoffs? Um, any positives to take from the last number of games? Um, well, for me, for me, I guess where I lean on with this, if we're looking for positives, is that there's no way that the Jets are as bad as an 0-7 team, um, nor were they as good as they were at the start of the year, right? I mean, these things happen and hockey streaks happen, even over the course of those games. Um, yeah, there were definitely areas to clean up. I, I think that, you know, obviously defense is an issue. Transition is a huge issue. Offense yeah. is a huge issue. But... In terms of the metrics, if you're if you're leading into shot metrics or flow of play metrics or anything like that, they weren't honestly that different. They weren't materially different over that seven-game stretch as a whole or over the last 10 games as a whole compared to the rest of the season in a lot of ways. So you might lean on, well, okay, um, every once in a while in a small sample that unique events can really skew things. And Connor McDavid is a unique event. Yeah. <laughs> who I genuinely believe skews shooting percentages so wildly that it, it's completely reasonable that they took it to Edmonton. Or sorry, took it to Winnipeg. Probably not the best way to add end a story talking about optimism or reasons for hope. <laughs> but I do think that they are better than two nine and two or whatever they ended the season at. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, do you think there's anything uh, to the last few games of Blake Wheeler's play? I know. Uh, I know we mentioned, or you mentioned, I think uh, that he had, I guess, some cracked ribs earlier in the season. I don't know if like that ever had a chance to heal or whatnot, but he has looked, I think, a little faster, a little better in his last few games, uh, especially the four-point night against Vancouver. Do you think there's any possibility of uh, continuing that into the playoffs? I think so. I do. let Brian, let me tell you that when I felt like the weirdest reporter ever earlier this season, I think it was February. I'd have to look. I'd have to check my phone. But I'm in the press box, and I'm looking at the bench, and Blake Wheeler is just sitting in a way that looks strange to me. Like, you can't – from that range, you can pretty much see faces. You can see body language. You can see that you know who you're looking at. So I pull out my phone, and I'm like, this is going to be a little bit creepy. I stand up. And I'm zooming <laughs> until I, I'm looking at Blake Wheeler. And he's just hunched over in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and I sent that uh, an image and like a three-second video to some of my closest friends. I'm like, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. I don't want to be weird. But like, is this guy okay right now? And we were, we were not quite able to put together that, you know, and obviously the Jets were certainly not going to tell us exactly what the situation was. But I think it was accepted by all that he was playing through something. And then it comes out. I, I think a TSN broadcast mentioned it first. Mm-hmm. He was asked after the game. Was that Tuesday? I, gosh, I maybe you guys know. I, these are all blurring into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and he he didn't deny it and, and he he felt said that he feels good now even last night i asked you know hey it looks like peaking at the right time because certainly like mm-hmm. not only the four points but last night he walked i think it was john Taveras on the way to the net there's some speed there's some physicality there is like a, a genuinely impactful second line winger in my opinion in blake wheeler like a top six player right now mm-hmm. that we did not see uh to start this season so mm-hmm. i mean if you can hand wave it away to that injury and i think to an extent you can because he's one of the most intense people if he's going to be on fire it will be probably now mm-hmm. um so i believe it is he going to go kucherov ham i don't think so but he's a right. player i think at this point. yeah mm-hmm. i mean it was never like he was ever like he wasn't a bad player or anything like in the in the previous season or anything like that you wouldn't expect him to just completely fall off a cliff like that without any uh explanation Mm -hmm. um yeah on the topic of on the topic of injuries i guess of course the big question mark going into uh series here would be nikolai ehlers um from what i've gathered it seems like he might not be starting uh, game one and even if he is or game two whenever he does come in it seems like he might be playing banged up um, of course you might have a little bit more insight into that um, what do you like I would say expect from from that do you do you expect him to be playing game one game two maybe sitting out coming in banged up what do you think I'm not sure what to say with any certainty whatsoever mm-hmm. I'm at the point where I'm open to either possibility is completely real I, I think that there's a high chance that when he does come back, he'll still be in pain. I mean, this is a guy who blocked a shot against St. Louis and then played the rest of that series with a cracked phone in his foot, right? I think he missed one game if I've got mm-hmm. he played. Um, and uh, I think that despite what, you know, some fans think that this is a soft player because he doesn't score in the playoffs. This guy, is, he's, he's an intense competitor, uh, and I, I think that he'll come back as soon as it is halfway safe for him to do is my, my guess, certainly. Um, and whether that's game one or not, I'm not sure. What kind of dynamism do we get from him? Well, at least he'll still be able to wheel. I mean, uh, his, his shoulder won't take away from, from that aspect of his game. You know, I don't know. It's, it's tough to project. The one thing mm-hmm. I'll, I'll point at is Paul Maurice last night was so asked to say Stastny and Dubois no issues they'll play game one right and the fact that he's still hedging his bets when he speaks to media about Nick Ehlers I'm you know like I say open to the idea that he's not there for game one necessarily sure for sure if he does come back uh where do you see him slotting into the lineup you think yeah for me I think that it's that second line right wing spot perhaps seems to be seems to be the play um it was his once upon a time and i think that at different times even the last since he's been hurt they've used players as a placeholder there with yeah, no yeah. matthew mm-hmm. Perot, who i love um i don't think that that's you know paul's ideal version of the second line right wing. i am curious to see if they leave pierre luc dubois there though and then perhaps play healers on on the left side in that role as well um but yeah. i don't think he's interrupting the connor shifley wheeler uh, top three of them. <laughs> Nothing can, yeah. can interrupt that. <laughs> no, no, no. For sure. 
Um, I guess let's hop over to the defensive side of things here. Um, of course, there's always that uh, that last spot on the third pair that's always been uh, kind of up in the air of who's going to take that slot. I guess, I mean, the entire third pair too. Um, you know, from your end of things, I'm not, obviously you can't predict what the coach is going to do or anything like that. Um, for I'm asking you personally, how would you, you know, if you were the coach going into, uh, into the playoffs here, how would you have your D pair set up? Oh boy. Um, if I have to accept a timeline that we live in, and this might surprise some, I would not start Ville Hainala. I think it's a shame that he didn't have a chance to play his way through uh, his NHL transition in January, February, or when he was called up and then was able to play just one game over the course of, uh, I think, a slightly more than a calendar month. Uh, yeah. But here and now, I don't feel like I've seen enough to say that I absolutely uh, I absolutely trust him in those high-pressure situations, which is which is sad because, I mean, a giveaway at the blue line and a miscommunication that I attribute to Connor Hellebuck personally behind the net, and only this small sample of a very good player. Now, put that aside, Morrissey DeMello is my go-to top pair. I think it's the best version of Morrissey we've seen. All the with or without you numbers support it, and if you're yeah. using with or without you numbers, you got to dig into the context of, well, how did – DeMello's minutes look with Morrissey. How did they look without? Who did he play with? Who did he play against? You have to sort of, I mean, that's what RAPM is really good for as well. But you really want to know your context. And with Morrissey and DeMello, the context is the same. They play against top opposition and they, you know, they're the best shot metric version of Josh Morrissey. I think that's, that's a clear cut top pair. And then, like, the second pairing gives me pause. Derek Forbert does not look good in the last months. And he, he has, I guess, some pedigree in the playoffs playing a third pair role for Calgary. I mean, top four with Drew Doughty. There is no peak Drew Doughty on Winnipeg right now. Right. Um, do you put Logan Stanley in that situation? Do you promote him? Because he's been very good in a third pair. But then you look at the minutes he's played in a third pair. And I did this in a mailbag recently. His top opposition against every Canadian team. And he's played like seconds against McDavid, mm -hmm. Pedersen, Dreisaitl, right. Matthew. Like, so we have to understand with this impressive season that he's having, it's been as sheltered as it comes. Like, I don't know that I can remember mm -hmm. a full season or even a half season of any player being remotely as sheltered as he has been. I think he's been good given that, but do you trust him in a top four role? That's a lot to ask. Absolutely. Neil is definitely on the right side. That's, that's no question. And you might even, maybe you can drop some ways where um, you can put Keonk and Morrissey together and, and, and hope. But for me, you know, he, he anchors that second pairing. Eileen Stanley Pullman as the third pairing. So I guess, does that mean that I'm leaving Derek Borbert there? You know what? I think that's what we're going to go with. You know, <laughs> probably, get a yeah. Take half an hour and come back to you. I think that's what we're going with right now. Yeah, I mean, despite Forbert struggling, I guess he and Pionk have still kind of gotten pretty decent results together. Like they've been more or less even on the shot metrics together. I think Pionk might be carrying a lot of that, but uh, mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you there. I, I do think it would have been nice to get Hainala a bit more action earlier in the season and see what he would have been like now with the development. Uh, maybe even it would have been nice to see them get Sandberg into some games, possibly, I would have thought. But what's done is done, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that Paul Maurice goes back with the Morrissey-DeMello pairing, or do you think he puts Pullman back up there? Mm -hmm. My guess 
you know, I think he has more time for Morris to DeMello now than he did at the first half of the season. So I'm not saying this to say that it's an absolute no chance that he does it. But the organization rates Tucker Pullman very highly. There's a reason why even in training camp, that was the pairing they went with. There was a reason that it was Pullman was Morrissey's most consistent partner last year, so far this year as well. They see something in him in terms of, I don't know if it's size or speed, that, that size balance with Morrissey. I'm not sure what it is. But everybody who I've talked to, even passively off the record, they just they, they believe in the guy. There's no one telling me that they doubt him whatsoever. I think he's their guy. And the results haven't borne that out. I mean, if he's an offensive player, I think he has one assist on the season. Double check that. Like, <laughs> um, I love seeing him jump into the play. I love when there's a fourth uh, attacker. I love when the Jets have, a, have numbers at the blue line on an offensive zone entry. Like, I think you see them do two-on-threes or two-on-twos or three-on-threes a lot. Um, and one area that has impacted them without Ehlers is that there's no one-man show. They're not outnumbering people at the line. They're not isolating little two-on-ones because, one, they've spent so much time in their own zone, but two, you know, so few of them jump into the play to add that extra option. Pullman kind of mm-hmm. does. Um, mm-hmm. It hasn't led to a ton in the way of results, and certainly, you know, in his own end, it, I, I don't feel... I think that they believe in him against any opposition with Josh Morrissey, but I don't think that they've had any results. One-on-one, Pullman versus McDavid is one of my least desirable matchups among the mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, yeah, you're right. One assist on the season doesn't exactly <laughs> spark a lot of confidence offensively. I, I don't, I'm not one of those guys that really looks at points a lot. I'm more of a shot metrics, uh, isolated impacts type of guy. And I know the isolated impact offensively hasn't really necessarily been there. He, he has seemed to have an okay impact defensively so far. I don't know if that's sort of overestimating him underestimating Josh Morrissey a little bit I I'm not really sure but yeah I uh I pretty much agree with everything you said uh Mm -hmm. regarding Tucker Pullman there um yeah um let's see um, <laughs> here I, I got one here so uh you know because we are kind of doing a, a bit more of a, a retrospective on the season than uh than really looking forward at the the matchup coming up um obviously a big big news was the uh the pld uh and and line a trade um just curious on your thoughts on of course now we've had a, you know a good you know 45 games 40-ish games of of Dubois playing here you know he's he has been shuffled around a lot you know played with a lot of different match or different uh groups of forwards Uh, I'm just curious on on your insight into him as a player um as well as just kind of a a little bit of a hindsight on that trade there for sure I, I think that any thought of PLD this season needs to acknowledge just the awkwardness of his year or or at least be couched in that a little bit. I mean, the quarantine out of the trade, then being injured so soon after that, missing more time uh, and then kind of trying to join a team that's in full flight, uh, um, you know, in mid season and form, let's say. Um, Sorry. What I was trying to do there was find a euphemism that acknowledged that the Jets weren't necessarily on fire uh, at the time. I Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) think. Um, so acknowledging that he's had an awkward, uh, had an awkward transition, you also need to, I think, acknowledge that he hasn't really been an impact player for Winnipeg. Um, that doesn't sour me on the player long term. 
at all. I mean, Patrick Laine had an awkward season in, in Columbus, and I don't think that he's suddenly incapable of playing hockey. The, the fits are what they are. Um, and especially with Pierre-Luc Dubois, as soon as the trade was made, um, I watched 15 games every shift of the guy, and I wrote, um, I wrote uh, here's what to expect from him at The Athletic. And one thing that I cautioned against was do not expect him to run people over. This is not a power forward in the traditional sense. He's not going to be trucking people around. I know we've all seen the Toronto Maple Leafs highlights from last <laughs> summer where, you know, he was absolutely dominant in so many different ways. But his most common, like, successful skill set is straight line speed, zone entries, and then, and then passes kind of really nice timing passes almost that defensemen don't necessarily expect. And he had a lot of success doing that in Columbus being the high guy in the defensive zone. Um, He was often stretched by the Columbus Blue Jackets in terms of uh, him attacking the neutral zone. And then he would curl along the right wing wall and then look for options from there, Um, which to me sounds like a right wing job that Winnipeg has landed on for him right now, possibly, is actually a really good fit for him right now. I don't expect him to absolutely take over the playoffs just because of he he had a good series against Toronto against Mm -hmm. Tampa Bay last year. But there is something more to this player than we've seen. Acknowledging he hasn't been dominant or close to dominant, really. Um, going forward, I still I still have a long, long road for him. I love the contract structure. I love that you know he's a an RFA next summer, not this summer. One more year of unrestricted before unrestricted free agency versus Patrick Laine. Um, so there are reasons to think that structurally it will still work out as a good trade, even though it hasn't really moved the needle so far this year mm-hmm. yeah it has really kind of kind of fizzled out on both ends of the trade I mean hey I mean as far as like actual impact this year I, I don't think anyone had Roslovic being the guy who had the most impact <laughs> on on either team but uh but I guess that's what, how it turned out um you got anything here Brian <laughs> yeah um I just want to uh ask a little bit about the uh about the bottom six and uh, Adam Lowry's contributions uh, and how important he'll be in the playoffs in terms of kind of the shutdown guy. And uh, I, I would assume he'll probably be playing with Kopp and Appleton again uh, once things start. Uh, yeah, just maybe uh, if you could uh, speak about that for a minute. But it seems, yeah, it seems most likely, Brian, I think you've got it. Like they're, we, we experienced a top six cop for parts of the season and that line with Stastny and Ehlers was great. Uh, they had some puck luck around the net in terms of rebounds and things like that, but they were also driving the net and things were working out for them. It was a, it was a pretty good look. I would say there's no way he's not landing with, Co- or with Lowry and Appleton. I think that's Paul Maurice's go-to just like Connor Seifley Wheeler is Paul Maurice's go-to. It's, this is the version that has worked during the best times in Winnipeg Jets land, right? Is that you have mm-hmm. confidence. As, as the checking line it's yeah. interesting to me that Perot has had better results with yeah and I really want to zoom into that before I was I was sure why that was but um, they haven't dominated the way that we remember I think sometimes right mm-hmm. uh, so that will be important okay Adam Lowry I think will be one of the most important Winnipeg Jets in the playoffs not just because he'll probably get a heavy matchup duty uh, but also Let's rewind. A year ago at this time, season's over. We're looking back at the regular season. Adam Lowry was disappointing. 
Adam Lowry was not the two-way stalwart center that we were used to. There wasn't an offensive contribution. Uh, there were some injuries. It was two years in a row where things weren't looking so good for him. Then he has a monster. That's a Pierre Maguireism that's somewhere in my brain. Monster uh, season or playoffs part of me or pre-playoffs against Calgary. He yeah. looked great. Absolutely, he did. In training camp, he looked great. This, he was moving fast. Uh, he looked strong. He was laying the body. He was holding like post training camp practice, like workout sessions with Mason Appleton. They were picking up pucks off the wall, um, sort of really spending himself as a leader. And people were gravitating towards him, I thought, just to watch the, the practices. And then he goes and he has, you know, one of his best stretches of offensive play of his career. He's hitting um, the concussion, certainly, sorry, the injury, I believe, that he said that is possible that it might just be neck, and there is some overlapping symptoms there. So I don't want to mm-hmm. say what it is if, if they haven't that personal. Um, uh, that's an issue, but I think he's looked like a very good version of Adam Lowry throughout the season. Like he's played his greatest hits for us and seems to be dialed in into the type of game that will succeed in the playoffs in a way that a lot of Winnipeg's perimeter style players don't necessarily do so I think that if Winnipeg has success it will be not just because Adam Lowry checked but because him or somebody on his line scored something from the slot or from the crease or through something completely crazy Mm -hmm. totally um of course, and we're, uh, we don't want to dive too, too deep into the uh, the upcoming playoff matchup because I think we're going to have another episode coming out shortly on it. But of course, we got to touch on it at least a little bit. Um, how do you see uh, the Jets kind of adapting? Uh, you know, how, how do you see Maurice adapting his Jets team to to the style of play that the, the Oilers do like to play? Um, and uh, again, I guess we kind of already touched a little bit on, you know, like a Lowry matchup and things like that. But like, how do you expect, uh, you know, the Jets to, uh, react to what the Oilers bring to the table? For sure. That's, a, I mean, that's the million dollar question. I, I think if they had answers, they would not have gotten so thoroughly smoked. Uh, <laughs> but, but so one little thing that Paul Maurice used to be able to do against the elites of, of the world is line match so aggressively um and so so firmly by which i mean like be willing to take a 15 second shift switch a line on the face off etc etc um with the confidence that maybe it was lowry's line or who's ever at the time was going to have success so let's call it lowry's line was having success against mcdavid he would chase the matchup um not just so he had lowry against mcdavid but so that the other coach had to make a decision. Am I happy to run McDavid against Lowry or do I want to dodge that? And if he dodges that, which used to happen, um, what happens is that McDavid gets away from the deep pairing that feeds him the puck the best. Mm. This is an area of bench management that we don't talk a whole lot about. Winnipeg's very committed. They, they, Winnipeg cares which defensive pairing plays behind which forward group. Some of that is because of puck service. And Winnipeg used to believe that it could bump McDavid away from its better puck move from Edmonton's better puck moving defenseman and sort of hem him in his own zone or make life tougher for him that way. It has stopped chasing that kind of behavior because it doesn't work anymore. Like I don't know if it's a thing that works anymore against Connor McDavid. So we're going to 
we're going to leave that alone. I mean, unless you're going to play a, a third forward extremely high in the offensive zone and just pretend that you're not trying to score so that you have better, um, better rush coverage. I mean, what are you supposed to do necessarily? I guess defensemen just need to be extra sure that their forwards are coming back if they're going to pinch. Maybe they pinch less often. Um, you know, those are sort of the sorts of things that McDavid can get in a team's head about for sure. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the ice, you know, Winnipeg struggled to score lately as well, right? And you hear Paul Maurice talk a lot about the kinds of goals that get scored in the playoffs. I think Edmonton has been great in the neutral zone against Winnipeg. I think Edmonton has been great at collapsing, protecting the middle of the ice against Winnipeg. And traditionally what that leads to um, is shots from the outside and cycling from the outside. So if Blake Wheeler and Mark Scheifele can go off and, and have that like cutback game going and find chances in the middle of the ice, then great. That might still work. If not, what we're going to probably see is a lot of point shots into, into shin pads or point shots yeah. looking for those deflections. And you've yeah. seen a lot of that in these last couple of weeks. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of offense going for that redirect out of the middle of the ice that starts from the point. And it's why Winnipeg shot attempt numbers look so good and why their expected goals and other sorts of things where there's a little bit of geography tied in don't look good at all. They're not right. taking those chances from the... From the um, but... But maybe a perfectly placed deflection is such a good play that it breaks shot metrics models. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I think they're banking on. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not so much of a believer in doing that. Like you could get lucky for a bit. It's like it's possible. I don't think that's necessarily the the way to plan it. If if that's the way I'm doing things. Um, just to throw it out there, do you think, do you think maybe a more aggressive, maybe a bit more active D and trying to create a bit more of a, a possession game would be a better way to go against the Oilers? I feel like, I just feel like if you do that, you're kind of helping your, uh, your more possession dominant forwards like Lowry or possibly even Dubois, you know, those type of guys. Uh, yeah, I, I was just, wondering about your thoughts about that you know it's interesting to me like i get i i've asked this question to people in in analytics departments you know and the answer that i got from one of them that is stuck in my brain is you know is, is people think that if you have those players like the shikleys and connors in transition or maybe you know winnipeg has strength at forward and and certainly you know if you take out edmonton's top two guys winnipeg is the deeper forward group right so the, the answer they gave me was, you think that Winnipeg win that game 6-5, but you're actually going to lose it 4-1. Like, the, mm-hmm. the the confidence... Now, they didn't lay out their proof, so I can't, I can't step into that <laughs> with any real intelligence. But there seemed to be a suggestion that um, the type of game that you have to play to open up and play that pond hockey comes with such risk and against, you know, a team that's going to have one of McDavid or Dreisaitl on the ice for... 30 whatever minutes of the game, if not more, I'm not sure how they're going to use them necessarily. Um, seemed to be the suggestion was that was playing with more fire than it was creating an opportunity. I'm not sure. I, I have wanted Winnipeg's defense to be more active the entire season. I think that that would be a good look for them. At the same time, there have been lots of times during the season where Winnipeg's fours aren't giving them the requisite help. And, you know, there's a difference between, Tucker Pullman jumping into the rush and Dustin Bufflin jumping into the rush. Yeah. So is he yeah. there to be there or is he there and then going to have an impact? So, mm-hmm. yeah, hopefully that's not too much of a non-answer. I, like, I want to entertain the idea. Yeah. 
something to think about. We haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to have a, a genuine experiment. And, and, and Winnipeg has looked good when you get that Morrissey-Pionk pairing chasing games. They're more active. They jump up into the play. Sometimes you do get four on twos at the line or, or even like um, that Morrissey-Pionk interchange that I think led to a goal a few games ago. Gosh, I keep saying a few games ago, but within the last couple <laughs> of weeks, there's something there. And then you just think of like the lack of, of roster talent throughout the rest of that group. And you're like, well, okay, you could try to play that way and you'd get exposed. Here's the last thing I'll say on the topic. Here's, here's one thing that I, I've asked coaches at one point before. Do you play different systems depending on who's on the ice, your team and theirs? And most often I've been told no, which seems strange to me. Like it may be that the answer is to play wildly differently when McKinney and Brad are on the ice in terms of how conservative you are and wildly more aggressive pond hockey style when they're not. Again, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I I have thought about that before, just like, you know, sitting at home. I think, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if when, you know, Shifley and Wheeler are on the ice, they're playing one sort of way. And when Cop and Lowry are on the ice, they're they're sort of playing, you know, a a different kind of way. I I just thought that would be, you know, I just thought it was an interesting thought, you know. And uh, yeah, subtle ways that happens uh, for sure, and and subtle ways that that happens just as a result of what their skill sets happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, and maybe there's little adjust. There are definitely little little adjustments, like where they engage in the neutral zone, depending on how fast they are, for example. But um, but in terms of sweeping systemic changes, like we're going to play wildly. I, I people keep denying that to me, and I don't see it. So there's that. Sorry, Brady, I cut you off. No, no, it's okay. I was just gonna, I was just gonna agree with you and just be like, yeah, I, I, I yearn for the days. I, I mean, obviously, all of us always think back to the uh, the 2017-18 run. And one of the things that I've really missed from the Jets, and I think maybe it's just probably because you don't have the the talent on the back end to be able to do it, is the way the the defense would play super aggressively uh, at the blue lines. Like it would, it like pinches were were super common back in the day. Whereas I feel like nowadays, um, actually, Brian, I think you. You were you had a couple of tweets on this from uh, from Jay Fresh talking about these zone exits and uh, zone entries for for the Jets, but it seems like they've really in the past few years uh, come off of that that style of trying to hold up at the blue lines, um, and they seem to almost just let people come in on them. I mean, I don't really have a question here. I was just more saying uh, I agree with you, and I I would love to see a little bit more uh, you know aggressiveness and, and things like that. And I guess I'll turn this into a question. Do you think that that style would be uh, more beneficial or do you think that that, you know, maybe because we don't have the personnel we used to, uh, there's a reason why we don't, don't play like that anymore. A little bit of both comes to mind. Like for mm-hmm. me, like if you want to play it scientifically, my answer is like, you'd have to see it. You'd have to see a yeah. Jet yeah. Honest run at it to know. But Paul Maurice and Charlie Huddy were faced with this problem at the beginning of last season okay, your defense has been gutted, what system in the world could possibly make them look good, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as we poke and prod at, um, at things like that offensive zone pressure or the, the willingness to pinch, um, you know, Paul Maurice's decision and Charlie Huddy's decision was they're going to back off the offensive blue line and they're going to reduce those rush chances against because in 2018, 2019, there were a lot of rush chances against. They didn't like what happened. So they're going to make sure that rushes are reduced Yes, it comes at the cost of offense because some of those pinches don't get made. Some of those bucks don't get kept in. Their guess is that the trade-off is going to be the most flattering towards the Winnipeg Jets defense. And it's like, okay, I understand that. That's 100% baked into how they played deliberately. So you're, 
you're right to point that out. And then the question is, okay, if these same players played wildly, not wildly, but if they played concertedly, aggressively, and if they were getting that back pressure to justify it, what would happen? And I don't mm-hmm. think we, we know the answer with scientific proof because we haven't seen, you know, I mean, Anthony Botetto's name came to my mind first. But <laughs> we haven't seen the, the less elite players play that way necessarily. And when we do, I mean, they're, they're less dynamic and, and it, it may turn into less as well. So mm-hmm. I guess for me, it lands on, you know, what's the Winnipeg's areas of strength? It's probably the forwards. So if you have Mark Shifley, Paul Stastny, Adam Lowry playing the defensive games of their life and, 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 and busting back hard every single time, and then the winger defense is there as well, then you compensate and you give those defense defensemen a chance to, to jump in a little bit more often, even if it's not the game plan to have that dial ratcheted up to 2017, 2018, if you're getting quality defensive play from, from those top centers, I think the whole thing looks a little bit better. Gosh, that's a monologue, but I also want to end with it. I don't want to make the all-stars as jobs even harder because they, mm-hmm. they contribute so much in the way of offense um, and teams win and lose with their stars. But if they were able to add that element to their game, Shifley in particular, which we've seen spurts of, but I don't think he's dominant, um, that would make everybody's life a little bit easier. So basically what we're saying is the, the biggest thing the Jets could add right now is, uh, is an elite offensive defenseman, which totally just grow on trees. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. You can also lay the body and, uh, and pick two guys out of scrum. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> Real picks yeah. of the friends we lost along the way. Yeah. Oh man, uh, it's depressing thinking about <laughs> what we're missing with that guy right now. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you get a sign of life, and you see him fishing on uh, on social media. And you just go, "Well, I'm, I'm glad he's happy. I'm just happy he's he's doing well." <laughs> oh, right on. That's good. Yeah, that's right on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for what I have written down here, the only uh, other thing I, I really wanted to maybe touch on, I guess this gets a little bit away from the Jets. Um, I just have Cole Perfetti's name written down here. Uh, I, I feel like we should at least mention, of course, he's had a he had a great season with the Moose, and now he is uh, he is going over to compete in the World Championship uh, for Canada. Um, just curious what you think, you know, just the, um, you know, that invite uh, and the uh, – the the opportunity to play on uh you know team canada uh, of course it's not you know olympic team canada or anything like that but uh do what do you what do you see that as that um what do you see how do you see that helping him uh, in his development do you see that as as a big thing that maybe pushes his confidence up do you see him maybe being a guy who could be slotted in uh, as soon as next year uh, if so where kind of thing uh, like what, do you, what are your thoughts on cole perfetti uh recently yeah, the, the the little lion, the young king. Um, yeah, <laughs> I I think that the it's been a pleasure to watch development in real time. I think that has been it for me with Cole Perfetti. That you know he's not a big guy, he's not a lightning quick guy, that's for sure. And so you wonder how is he going to translate his 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 strengths and his offense to that next level? And originally, first couple of games with the Moose, um, first opening stretch for the Moose, not just a couple of games. He looked like a player who was already capable with the man advantage or at four on four or three on three. When there's time and space, his brain takes over, his hands take over, good things happen. But over the course of like half a season, realistically, like from January to now, 
uh, from over the last couple of months, really, uh, we've seen the game sort of slow down for him. He looks faster. His brain opens things mm-hmm. up quicker. Um, he can play a patient game or an aggressive game. Uh, his strengths, the sorts of plays he was able to make in junior where he gains the zone and then um, and just outweights, really. He's watching the defenseman, not just the one in front of him, but the rest of them in the zone as well. And then processing where they're, everybody's going slightly faster than everybody else, then boom, there's an incisive pass into the middle. And it's all patience and brains. And you wondered if he could do that against men because they're faster. They take away that space faster than junior players did. They hit harder, they position better, um, all that sort of stuff. And by the end of the season, he's finding those same kinds of plays for the Manitoba Moose. And for me, 18 to 22 is such an important developmental age for me. It's for me, the, the ultimate goal is find that zone of development where the competition they're playing and the role that they have is the, the most difficult competition they can still have success against while learning. And I think that the Manitoba Moose and the AHL are that perfect level for Cole Perfetti. Had he been in the NHL immediately, he could have drowned a little bit. Had he been a junior, he could have been too good for them. But for him specifically as an elite teenager, I think that it was absolutely ideal for him. And Team Canada, feather in his cap, a nod to the great season he had, another opportunity to prove himself against a, a high level of competition. You're, you were right to say, like, I mean, the NHL appearances that this is going to be a lot less this year than in regular years. I think a lot of guys are exhausted. They're fatigued. It's been a heck of, it's been a strange time, right? People mm-hmm. wanted to go back and be with their families, but it's still going to be a great opportunity for him. Um, And the end of that monologue is really this. It's like there have been a couple of draft classes over the last several years. 2003 comes to mind. You got to like that's the Getzlaff draft um, where teams were finding like top line talent right through the end of the first round. Like there's such a tiny percentage of misses in that 2003 draft. Well, what happened in 2004, 2005 was an NHL lockout. And there were a lot of teenagers and 20 year olds a 20-year-old is predominantly part of me playing in the AHL. And I think that that helped those players in a huge way. Cole Perfetti is uniquely lucky. And this year worked out perfectly for him. I could see him making the NHL roster next year in a complementary offensive and power play role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I could, I could talk for too long about for that player. And then also, <laughs> yeah. I was going to start whining about Billy Hanala, but we touched, that, 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 we touched on that earlier. I mean, you can if you want. <laughs> I just think like it is again. I talk about eighteen and twenty-two. You want to play in that zone of proximal development. I don't know if that's a term, but it's in my head. Um, where you are playing, you're playing often. You're playing a substantial role, and you're playing against competition that you can have success against without it being too easy for you. Well, the AHL, Billy Hanel was an excellent elite player. I think he would have still had plenty to learn and develop at that level for sure. Um, for me, calling him up not to play him and then to take away his, 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 even his AHL playing time. Forget about whether he's going to supplant one of the NHL veterans. The idea that he was practicing but not playing in games, I struggle with that. I think that the Winnipeg Jets may look at that and regret it later, thinking that they were too focused on the individual game in front of them and not on, on this elite player. And maybe he's so good he'll make me eat my words and none of us will care about this in a year, right? Like. <laughs> Um, but that one, that one bugged me a little bit. I, I don't think that he was handled as well as he could have been. Um, I wanted to ask, um, I guess, did, did you watch a lot of the uh, moose down the stretch here? 
I mean, it's funny down the stretch it, it fell off for me but i think i have 10 games over the course of the season oh, okay yeah i i wanted to ask what your thoughts on dylan sandberg were specifically because he's a guy who i thought really could have had a chance to make the team out of training camp um just wondering what you kind of saw from him at the moose and what uh what you think of him uh for next season possibly yeah. i i see him as a player that on the NHL roster next year, I was I was um, I was slow playing him in my mind heading into this season. Like I wrote an article that looked at uh, college defensemen transitioning to the NHL over the last like 20 years or something like that. And lately, I mean, we have some awfully elite ones in the NHL right now. But the overwhelming trend is even the best ones, even the ones that go on to have dominant, excellent top four careers, spend some AHL time, whether it's half a season, whether it's 10 games, whether it's more than one season. And mm-hmm. for me, Dylan Sandberg playing in the AHL all year, completely fine. Develop, like, I have no complaints. I love that he played a big role. I love that he played well. Um, there wasn't a ton of offensive output in terms of points, but like you say, right. sometimes it's more important to look at where the flow of play is when, when the player is on the ice. And, and I think Dylan Sandberg had a lot of success in there. Like, I think that he was at home uh, and, and like Winnipeg should continue to be excited about him as a prospect is my takeaway. That's awesome. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to add, Brady? Um, right now, my list is pretty much covered. Uh, Murat's been been fantastic and just rolls through each one of them so easily. Um, yeah, I, I've got nothing else really here. I'll be I'll be honest. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think we'll... every time you ask me a question, that's why. <laughs> hey, it's perfect. It's perfect. We love to listen. So. No, it's great. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up right away here. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to just add out of nowhere, Murat? Uh, out of nowhere? <laughs> it's been a wild year, right? Like I'm sitting traditionally for these, I get wired up. I'd, I'd have a coffee. I've just started to sip this one. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I try to focus on getting pumped up and like energized and, and all this sort of stuff. But like, it's been such an interesting year that just the opportunity to sit here comfortably in my living room and talk comfortably about hockey with you guys and like to have a fan driven podcast play such a role in the Winnipeg sphere is a good thing right like I don't think that I as a media person or the Jets as a team have to agree with everything you guys say ever oh, yeah well but no one's gonna agree that. with like sorry, another monologue but I just I love that you guys exist it, it's it's an important note so thanks for having me thanks for including me uh, when, when I get to be on uh, well, we thanks. certainly enjoy having you. It's yeah. uh, it's a lot of fun, and uh, honestly, I was I was really looking forward to doing this, and uh, I had a lot of fun. So uh, <laughs> it was perfect. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Jets fans, for listening. Um, we'll be back with more, and uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for sure. Have a good one. I'm Kirk Gilback, and thank you for listening to the Jet Centric Broadcast.